2: America is better than its national government. Thank goodness. Yeah. That argument may surprise you, but we're about to give you some reasons why it's true.
1: Our towns, solutions, and reinvention. James
3: Fallows. This still can be the country people would like to think it is, by which I mean a country with grievous flaws and with all the challenges and burdens and imperfections of American history, but with a sense of reinvention and of possibility and of in, and of, of collaborative effort, all the things that we would like to think characterize the country.
2: Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? To state the obvious, our nation is divided nationally. But exciting things are happening locally. In towns and cities across the country, America is still going strong. James
1: and Deborah Fallows wrote... Our Towns, a positive and really provocative book about what they've heard and what they saw during a nearly five-year, 100,000-mile journey all around the country.
2: They spoke to civic leaders, entrepreneurs, teachers, librarians, students, immigrants, city planners, artists, business leaders, and many more. And what I love is
1: they flew all over the country in their plane. They would land in one of these towns and then head off to go see what was making these mean and
2: small cities really work. James Fallows is a national correspondent for The Atlantic. He's reported from China, Japan, Southeast Asia, Europe, and the United States. James joins us via Skype from London, where he's on assignment. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Uh,
3: thanks. It's a pleasure and honor to talk with
2: you both. James, let's jump right in. Uh, the America we so often read about in the media is Not what you portray in our towns, is it?
3: Uh, It is not. The contrast between the way the country seems city by city, where people are generally practical minded, that is such a contrast to the way the national media generally portray the situation of the country as a whole. So trying to give this different face of America to a broader section of readers is what we were trying to do.
2: What were you surprised by what you found?
3: I think the initial surprise, starting back uh, five years ago now in 2013, we were traveling mainly to the plain states, starting in the Dakotas, was just how much there there was to parts of America that generally are portrayed by the media as the objects of trends starting someplace else. And so uh, in Sioux Falls, we saw a range of high-tech agricultural industries and financial centers in the prairies and people who felt as if they were committed to building their community. So I guess the simplest way to put the surprise at the end of, of five years is how much better people generally felt about the part of the United States they directly experienced than the part they just read about in the papers or heard about on TV and radio. So how did you
1: choose these places? I mean, were you specifically looking for places that other people are overlooking?
3: Uh, Yes, I put a post on the Atlantic's website. And I said, we'd like to hear why your town is a place that is the representative town of of America. So we were looking for something that was smaller in the sense of the attention it normally gets. And that it had some kind of problem, a factory closing down, a drought, a fire, a political upheaval, whatever, and where the response to that problem would tell us something about the nature of American resilience in this era. And we got about a thousand essays from from 49 of the 50 states. And over the next couple of years, we have sort of started working through a list, looking for representation by parts of the country and by size and by the degree of difficulty they were facing. You know, towns as hard pressed as San Bernardino in California are ones as relatively uh, successful right now as Greenville, South Carolina. You also did something pretty unusual. You flew
1: everywhere. What informed this decision to jump in your airplane rather than buy
3: an RV? <laughs> well the the main reason was we we had a little propeller airplane as opposed to an rv and by flying it around the country over the course of many years we'd learned a couple of things about the the virtue of that kind of travel there's a kind of logic to the American landscape that you see from low altitude aviation that you can't see from the ground in in a car, which is seeing how the rivers and the hills and the valleys and everything else fits together and explaining why places are where they are.
2: Well, give us an example of that, that thought.
3: Uh, One is the little town of Eastport, Maine, which is the smallest place we went. It's only fewer than 2,000 people there. And the most remote It's the very farthest northeast town in, in in Maine before you get to the Canadian border. But as you fly up the coast of Maine, uh, you get low altitude, you can see sort of the economic landscape change beneath you. It's all beautiful. But around Portland and southern Maine, you can see the sailboats out in the harbors and you can see these very fancy resort houses. And as you keep going further north, you can see the forest coming down further towards the seacoast. You you can see the houses getting smaller. You can see some mobile homes. You can see pickup trucks. And then as you uh, approach Eastport, Maine, 30 or 40 miles in the distance, you can see that it's positioned right at a strategic place where the Bay of Fundy comes through there. Of course, the strongest tidal currents in the world, and there's been all sorts of fishing consequences of that. It's a natural harbor, which during the days of the uh, the late 18 hundreds and early 1900s made it a huge fishery port, and there's just kind of a place where it is nestled on the coastline. And if you're going to build a settlement there, that is where it would would be. And that that's you know, the that's the first example. <laughs> how about how about the second? <laughs> okay, the, the second would be. Um, I grew up in Southern California, so I didn't know about the logic of the East Coast geography until really I was flying around here. And I remember reading in history books about the Fall Line, which was so important in the early industrialization of the United States, where the the waters, the rivers would come out of the Appalachian Mountains, going towards the Atlantic Coast, and there were all these waterfalls, and that's where people built mills in the 1700s and 1800s, and that's where the first industries sprouted up from from Massachusetts all the way down to South Carolina and Georgia, and you can still see that like a Lego set, or as if you were God, why things were placed where they've ended up now once you land in one of these towns you
1: and deborah would fan out what was your game plan how did you report from each of these towns
3: or small cities usually the ones that we wrote about at some length in the book we ended up spending usually about two weeks in and usually in two one-week visits and the first day or so (laughs) deb and i would look for a place to stay get a ride into town from the small airport we'd try to meet the newspaper editor early on and the mayor And the librarian and the head of the school system and people we'd studied up on and gotten in touch with. And we'd ask each of them, what's the story of the town? What's going on here for better and for worse? What do people really care about here? And the other thing we'd ask them is, who makes things go here? Who should we talk with to try to get a, a picture of the town? And the answer is really varied in that to that latter question. And I can give you examples later on. But but then we spend, you know, then we begin uh, separating. Deb would usually go to schools and libraries. I'd go to factories and universities and things like that. At the end of each day, we compare our notes, start typing up the interviews and, and mainly just in a sense of amazement of about what we'd seen we had no idea of before.
2: You flew into what has been derisively called flyover country." W- what do you think of phrases like "flyover country" or "rust belt? I, I think that that they're interesting
3: in their kind of casual derogatory quality. The Rust Belt, of course, describes something real, where you have the factories from the the late 1800s and through mid-20th century that largely now are in decline, just because giant factories don't have the same role in the U.S. or any place. But in many of these, quote, Rust Belt, unquote, places, they were trying to use the term chrome belt. To talk about the new possibilities that were coming up, uh, flyover, of course, is is obviously uh, derived from from airline use. But but I think that that behind that casual airline use is a real media sense in which the middle of the country is not presented with the same agency that that the big cities are. So we wanted to look at these these centers not as objects of things happening someplace else, but as agents of figuring out what their future was.
1: Now, one of the towns that you visited was Greenville, South Carolina. It's a deeply conservative place, and a city was facing some of these challenges. They lost their textile industry in the 90s. But you found something exciting going on there.
3: 25 or 30 years ago, that is within the lifespan of most Americans now, most of the economy there was textiles. And with the coming of shifts in world trade with NAFTA, with the WTO, with the emergence of China, the textile industry just went away. And so you had something that was the main industry going to essentially zero of the economy within, within one generation. And the way that Greenville essentially saw this coming, And began planning for it 25 or 30 years ago should be instructive for every place else. They worked with the state government and the federal government to try to apply their manufacturing skills to a different sort of industry. And now they have a big um, BMW plant there that exports to all around the world. They have a big GE plant that makes advanced turbines, and things like that, a Michelin tire factory. And so it's a big manufacturing center now with advanced tech. The other thing they did was their downtown Long ago, it had been one of the classic American downtowns. Then, through the 1950s and 1960s, it had the same devastation from sprawl that so many American downtowns have. And now it is a showpiece that literally every week there's some delegation from Amsterdam or from Japan or from South America or from Oregon coming to see. Look how nice Greenville's downtown is. How can we have something that has this mixture of downtown residents and downtown offices and downtown entertainment and all that? So Greenville should be really well known as a poster child of civic American uh, agility and reinvention.
2: That's Greenville, deeply conservative. How does it contrast and compare with Burlington, Vermont, which for quite a long while had a socialist mayor? And yet you say there are there are similarities.
3: You know, to the extent people know about both Greenville and Burlington, they would think of Burlington as the home base of Bernie Sanders, which it was, and it being probably the most small p progressive or liberal state in the country in Vermont, and 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 Greenville by by contrast, is the home of Bob Jones University and their congressman is Trey Gowdy, et cetera. Although Trey Gowdy th- doesn't
1: seem, by today's standards, Trey Gowdy yes. seems
3: less conservative than some of the Trump acolytes. And it's a place that this part of, the, uh, of South Carolina went for Trump by, by a huge margin. And so – In the ways we normally categorize cities, they're complete opposites. But in other ways, they seem to function just the same way. The mayor works with the state government, works with the companies, works with the universities, works with everybody. So you have practical minded, non-polarizing means of just getting on with things in both of these cities that normally are on opposite ends of the political spectrum.
2: Yeah, that's so interesting. So so people don't divide neatly into right versus left or pro-Trump, anti-Trump.
3: Here's the most important journalistic lesson I learned over these years. It is instinctive and almost irresistible for people in our business. Wherever you go, whether it's a big coastal city or someplace in the interior, and the first thing you start asking is how people place themselves on the national political grid if they are for trump are they still for trump what do they think will happen in the midterms et cetera, et etc and that was something we tried really hard not to do because what we we realized over time is that the answers to those questions number one are never interesting <laughs> <And> people just <laughs> i mean they just tell you what you already have heard on cable news and number two They don't ever tell you what's actually happening in those places where in Greenville and Burlington alike, what was interesting was adjusting the industry to a new era. And what was interesting was having a new kind of high school that could train people, train students who weren't going to college for these new kinds of jobs. What was interesting was absorbing refugees and all these things that if you didn't tie them to the morass of national politics, suddenly, The answers were so much more interesting and so much more practical uh, city by city across the country.
1: We're talking to James Fallows, author of Our Towns, A 100,000-Mile Journey into the Heart of America, which he wrote with his wife, Deborah
2: Fallows. I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. It's How Do We Fix It?
1: One thing we talk a lot about on how do we fix it is this ability to talk to people who whose politics you might not agree with. You have a great line in your book, you say one hallmark of a lot of these communities is that the people in them have gotten good at bypassing the dismal national conversation and getting to work on things they do share in in their local community and not not getting tied up in this kind of tribal opposition.
3: Uh, yes, I agree with what I said in my book, <laughs> as, as as you nicely quote. And, and it's true that you can't talk about Donald Trump anymore. You know, people are in one category or another when it comes to him. But if you don't talk about that subject, then we found people being able to talk about schooling and about immigrants and about taxes. And I'll, I'll give you one illustration here. We spent a lot of time in western Kansas, which is politically very conservative by national terms. But the people there facing Mm -hmm. funding crises for their schools and facing some other problems, they have voted big tax Increases on themselves; they've voted permanent, new, big taxes to be able to refund their schools and be able to rebuild their downtowns. And, 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 to build and, and
2: that doesn't fit in very neatly with the narrative that conservatives are automatically against higher taxes. Uh,
3: exactly. And we went to some of the civic sessions they were having in Western Kansas about these new tax levies, and the discussion was the way you would like to think reasonable people would talk about these things of how will the money be used and what what will be the accountability of it? And what's the sense that if you, if you invest in a new community college, who is that going to attract to the town and where will the people go who will be trained there? Will they stay around or will they they go? And so it was all the parts. (laughs) Let me use another example. I am always amazed and impressed when I listen to sports talk radio which I do a lot of how sophisticated people can be when they're talking about uh, the NBA finals or talking about draft picks for the NFL or talking about anything else involving sports. And when you hear some national politics, you feel like two thirds of the brain power that people apply to sports is removed when they talk (laughs) about national politics. But it's still there when they talk about local politics, they can still talk about the downtown and about gun safety and all these other things.
1: One of my favorite parts of your book, James, is that in pretty much every town you go to, one of your first places you stop is the local craft brewery, and you, you talk to the <laughs> brewers and the people who started the company. And, but you have a serious point with that, aside from a, apparently you know liking a fine IPA once in a while, that these businesses can be a hallmark of a reviving community.
3: Uh, Yes, I always love it when there's this craft brewery near an airport, you just have to do these things in the right order, you know, (laughs) first landing the plane, then going to the brew pub. But it's become a real economic thing, both in terms of of scale, there's a couple hundred thousand jobs, which are, are reasonable jobs in a, in a fast-growing category in the craft brewing industry. It also is restoring one fascinating part of the American economic landscape. It's it's been a profoundly local industry, and in many many towns, it's been the the vector for rehabilitating parts of downtowns because craft breweries can go someplace where the real city is cheap. They attract a crowd through the day and the evening and then other industries follow. So craft brew is good.
2: How did people react when you landed or when you first visited
3: So, you know, America is a big, complex place. There's a whole range of people here, but on balance. We found people, most places, most of them were surprisingly willing to talk with us. We tried to be very respectful, saying we're here for the Atlantic magazine, which is America's oldest magazine, but we're really here trying to understand what we don't know about the real story of Charleston, West Virginia, or the real story of Fresno, California, or the real story of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So by trying to be, to be humble and curious, we found most people, most places, impressively uh, generous and nice.
2: I want to talk about immigrants and how the most successful communities often integrate immigrants into the mainstream community. Did you see a lot of examples of that? Because there's a very disturbing debate going on in Washington about limiting immigrants and saying we don't want any more immigrants, which is the the populist wing of the Republican Party talking more and more about that.
3: I think there there was no single issue in which the contrast between national rhetoric and local realities was more dramatic than when it came to immigration by which I mean there was an almost perfect reverse correlation uh, between um, presence of immigrants and worry about immigrants. The more immigrants that were there, the less anxious anybody uh, felt about it. And just to give you a couple of illustrations, Western Kansas is now, many of the cities there are majority Latino communities. And that's historically because the beef packing industry industry has moved there. There has been a lot of uh, Mexican and other Latin American workers who have moved there. And when we talked to the white people in Dodge City and Garden City, both what we heard from them is this is our future. You know, if we want our communities to have a future, it has to be this inclusive future because these are the people who are coming, coming to our town. And it wasn't that they said that. But also they were doing things. They were spending more money on their schools, even though the students there were largely non-white. They were finding ways to to avoid immigration hassles for some of the city officials were Latinos, including one who was famously there on a DACA waiver in, in Dodge City. So so I think that, that that if you hadn't heard the national rhetoric of the last two or three years, you would think the process of immigration was going on the way it always has, which is to say it's never been entirely problem free, but it is continued. And and that's happening now, I think also, especially in Rust Belt cities, where they feel as if this is their source of rejuvenation is to get people from someplace else to give their city some spark. And we saw that in Allentown, we saw it in Erie, and we saw it through that northern industrial belt.
2: Final question, James. Is America much more resilient across the country in its towns and cities than It is portrayed to be.
3: Uh, Yes, it is. You'll be surprised to hear me say. (laughs) And and, and it, it is this still can be the country people would like to think it is, by which I mean a country with grievous flaws and with all the challenges and burdens and imperfections of American history, but with a sense of reinvention and of possibility and, of, in, and of, of collaborative effort, all the things that we would like to think characterize the country. That part of America is still there. We just need to sort of peel off this obscuring layer of national dysfunction and allow the functional part of America to come back into view. Thank you, James Fallows. It's an honor to be with you. Richard, I think we were about
1: halfway through interviewing James Fallows when we both realized that our usual rule of trying to keep our our interviews down to, you know, roughly half an hour or so just wasn't. It, it, it fly. wasn't working. So and this is just, two shows. And it's too interesting to edit any of the the fascinating insights that he gave us. So we'll save the full wrap up for the second Installment. Yeah, of we'll, we'll
2: bore you with that at the end y- yes, of the second yeah, nothing show. Nothing we're going to say James can be Saller. as interesting as what,
1: <laughs> what he says. But, I, I, but a couple of things that really jumped out at me that I think just resonate with some of the themes of the show. And, and one of them was just the, the idea that there's a world out there that's not being covered in the mainstream media. There are ways of living. You know, he talked about the, the flyover country. To me, that's a phrase that actually originated in Hollywood. They sort of thought, like, this is their audience not the people who make the movies just the people who are the the consumers of movies the, the,
2: the who are passive
1: yeah passive and he said that again and, who, and again who
2: things happen too right
1: right but in fact they're agents of their own futures and 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 that those worlds that aren't San Francisco New York or LA are becoming increasingly attractive to people. My my uh, nephew and his wife recently left high powered publishing careers in New York to move to Kansas for a very different kind of lifestyle. There's excitement and creativity and meaningful challenges in all of these pockets around the country.
2: And what we'll learn in the second part of this interview with James Fallows are some ways that successful communities have bounced back. Many communities that really were in trouble 20, 30 years ago with the decline of manufacturing who've come back to a considerable extent. We'll be looking at some solutions in the next episode. It's How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. The music is by Lou Stravinsky. We're a production of Davies Content. Thanks for listening.
0: Hold up.